Treating seed this spring? AGI Storm FX brings you the ultimate innovation in seed treating for your modern-day farming operation, offering you speed, accuracy, and flexibility. With a simplified design, gentle handling, and precise performance, you can choose to pre-treat or treat your seed just in time. This season, choose the AGI Storm FX Seed Treater to keep you on schedule and ahead of the curve. Visit aggrowth.com for more information or to find your nearest dealer. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong, but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch, or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women, and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Caroline Fanning. Caroline grew up on suburban Long Island, New York, and she spent her summers hanging out and working at the beach. She moved upstate to college where there were no beaches, but plenty of farms. Her first farm job was at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, a seven-acre vegetable farm where she learned the CSA model and where she met Dan Holmes, who would later become her business partner and husband. Over the next 15 years, they modeled their farm, Restoration Farm, on the Poughkeepsie Farm Project. The five-acre operation now produces vegetables, berries, flowers, and herbs for 120 CSA members and have an on-site farm stand. The farm is host to student tours, volunteer opportunities, and small-scale events, and prides itself on providing meaningful opportunities to engage with nature on public land. Before we get to today's interview, let's go over this week's listener review. This five-star rating and review from MW81 via Apple Podcast is titled, setting an example for rural women. I love listening to the stories Caitlin shares through the Rural Woman podcast. It's these stories of women in farming, ranching, and homesteading that help remind us that our work is important, meaningful, impactful, and it matters. It also is about community and inspiration and knowing we are not alone in our work, passions, and pursuits. Thank you so much for this kind rating and review over on Apple. My friends, if you have not left a rating and review on your podcast player of choice, I would highly encourage you to do so. This helps other like-minded rural women find the show. Your ratings and reviews help the Rural Woman podcast grow, and I am so grateful to read these kind words each and every week. 
Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Caroline. Caroline, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. I am very excited to dive in and get to know you more today. Thank you. Happy to be here. For the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Caroline, give us your background and how you got your start in agriculture. All right. So my name is Caroline Fanning. I grew up in Thurban, Long Island, a little town called Amityville on the Great South Bay. And there was no farming in my childhood to speak of other than visiting the Pick Your Own Pumpkin Patch in the fall. I did, however, spend all of my summers at the Amityville Beach, where I took swimming lessons and sailing lessons, and then as a teenager became a swim instructor, sail instructor, and art. So for me, summers were always spent outside. And then when I went off to college, I went upstate to college in Poughkeepsie, because I loved upstate New York. My family always vacationed at Lake George, so I had it in my head that I wanted to go to college close to Lake George. And I was having such a wonderful time at college, I didn't want to come home for the summers, so I needed a summer job. The first summer, I got a lifeguarding job, the Vassar Pool, which was indoors, and I started waitressing indoors and really felt like I lost the summer because up to that point, all my summers were spent outdoors. So the following summer, when I knew I would continue staying in Poughkeepsie, I was looking for outdoor opportunities, and that's where I think it was the career development office on campus where I found an ad for a summer apprenticeship at the Poughkeepsie Project, which at the time was a seven-acre organic vegetable farm on the Vassar campus that was doing a community-supported agriculture program and a lot of other educational programs as well. So I hired that summer to be an AmeriCorps farm educator. Myself and several other master students worked with teenagers from Poughkeepsie, and our job was to pretty much develop a farm-based curriculum for these kids. So that meant that our days were spent, like half the week we would actually be farming, just neither college students so we could learn about farming, and then the other half of the week, we would try to relay what we had learned ourselves to these high school kids. So it was a great experience. And at the end of that first summer, what I my biggest takeaway was that I really liked the grunt work. I just liked the hard labor, being out, sweating. I liked the kids. I liked the education. But if I had one choice, it would be to just pumping it in the fields. That is so interesting that you took your love of being outdoors in the summertime, of being on a beach, and now (laughs) have taken that to being outside, outdoors, working, not on a beach during the summers. (laughs) That, yeah, I mean, I love the water. It's ironic because I'm a Pisces. I always felt like I was meant to be a fish. So it it was a little startling to be very landlocked. And Hudson River is close by, but at the time, people were so concerned about PCBs in the water that no one considered it swimmable, which was such a shame because it's a beautiful river. I imagine things have changed since then, but I wouldn't know because I haven't lived there in many years. But yeah, instead of getting to swim, I was just yeah. sweating. <laughs> I was swimming in sweat. <laughs> that is like basically farmer swimming in the summer, I think. That is the <laughs> that's what we get to do instead. <laughs> So tell us about, you know, from your farm job at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project to where you are today. How did you get to your farm now, Restoration Farm? So 
I guess it was not necessarily by design. I just imagined these college summers to be that, you know, earning money in college. And then the goal after college, I guess I didn't even have a big goal other than to move to Manhattan or New York City, follow my friends because I just had a nice, fun network of friends and get a nonprofit job because I was really keyed into social justice issues and just earn money and kind of continue the college experience. So that's what I did after I graduated my first, well, my only um, New York City job for an organization. Um, At the time, their name was World Hunger Year. They've since changed that to Why Hunger. But it was founded, I believe, in the 1970s by Harry Chapin and Bill Ayers as an anti-hunger organization. And then over the years kind of evolved into more of a like food security perspective. So based on my time working at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, where we weren't just farming, we were also talking about food security issues, that positioned me to get the job at Water. So I was working in the city, living in the city, and then I spent my second summer ever indoors at a computer and once again felt like I lost the summer. So after about a year working in Manhattan, I was feeling very fulfilled at my job, but also knowing that I couldn't sit at a computer the rest of my, you know, working days. That's when I started wondering, well, what else might there be? And it just so happened that, kind of a complicated story, I'll see if I can make it simple. When I was working at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, the assistant grower up there was a guy named Dan Holmes, who also, like me, happened to be from Long Island. He was not a Vassar student. He was older. He had already graduated from Stony Brook, so he had moved upstate and got this assistant farming job. He had moved back to Long Island to take a head grower position in Amityville, which is my hometown. So I had this, you know, vague connection from years ago with this farmer now farming in my hometown, and I just kind of on a whim reached out to check in and see what was going on. And right off the bat, he offered me a job, and it happened to come at a time when I was wondering what else might there be. So. I mean, at the risk of sounding, you know, I don't know, fortune tellerish, I just felt in my heart like this is the thing to do. Like I wasn't meant to be in the city forever. I was probably partying a little too hard and felt like, you know, switching gears and going back to farming might be good for me. So that's what I did. I resigned from my Manhattan job. I moved back home with my parents pretty much for the first time since I moved off to college and started working at this small one-acre farm in Amityville with uh, this guy, Dan. We were there for, well, we were working together for one season and started dating immediately and pretty quickly realized that, you know, we want to continue farming, but we're going to need a bigger, a bigger farm to be able to sustain both of us. So in casting about for other opportunities, that was when Nassau County, which is like the adjacent county to us, put out a request for proposals for the creation of an organic farm on one of their parks. So... We were kind of like in the right place at the right time. We put together a proposal and we won the bid. So that was in 2007. We came on to this um, Old Bethpage Village Restoration Park, a Nassau County Park, and started creating our own farm, restoration farm. That is so neat. And I want to go back to the Poughkeepsie Farm Project. I want to know more about it. What was it that made you want to design your farm, restoration farm, around that project? Well, I think part of it was just we didn't know anything else. I mean, one of our shortcomings, I would say, or weaknesses as farmers is that both Dan and I 
we came from the same background. We had the same mentor. We don't really have a broad wealth of experiences, but we didn't work at many other farms. So all we knew was this one model, but it was a good model, we thought. What was special about the Poughkeepsie Farm Project is that because it was on the Vassar campus, it was able to draw from the Vassar faculty student body and get a lot of really passionate people who were excited about the farm's mission. It's also it's technically in a suburb of Poughkeepsie, but Poughkeepsie is a small city, so it was able to draw a lot of you know folks from the city of Poughkeepsie. So in addition to just growing vegetables, the farm was able to bring a lot of community people on site, whether college students or Poughkeepsie residents. So in our case at Restoration Farm, because we're on a Nassau County park in the belly of suburbia, it just seemed like, well, you know, we're going to have no trouble getting people to come to this farm. So we should set it up with that in mind. It sounds simple, but it's a big deal. At the Kipsey Farm Project, the head grower, he put a big premium on having pick-your-own opportunities for the co-op members. So when we started Restoration Farm, we made sure that we had a whole acre devoted to pick-your-own berries. And we've also included herbs and flowers. It's a lot harder to maintain, or for us in the beginning, maintaining pick-your-own perennials. You know, we didn't get a lot in terms of volume, but just to be able to offer to our customers, hey, you can walk out to the fields and pick your own blueberries, that was really exciting. People, they, they need a reason to walk out to the fields. So we want to give them a reason that. Yeah. And I just think it's really important, especially in more urban areas, to have people be able to have their hands on basically what they're eating. And it kind of sounds... I know for farmers who have been in the industry, you know, they were born into this. And when they hear the opportunities like pick your own or plant your own or whatever, they kind of just chuckle. They're like, well, I could give you a job to do this of picking your own, but obviously on a different scale. And for people who haven't grown their own food or, you know, for kids who haven't seen where berries come from or how flowers grow, like this is a really it's a molding opportunity for them to know these skills and to know where their food and flowers and all of these things come from. Yeah. And one thing I learned years is that when we, you know, advertise our pick your own offerings as part of the experience, it's exactly that an experience when people, you know, email me or call and they want to know, well, how how many berries are, am I going to get? I'm very quick to caution them. Look, you're not going to get a lot in terms of volume. If you're trying to go into the jam making business, this is farm for you. But if that's not what you're in it for, you're going to have a lovely walk down to the fields and you'll never know what kind of wildlife you'll encounter on that long walk down to the fields. And you might be really surprised about what a wonderful experience picking a half pint of blueberries could be. It's about more than just the berries themselves, but about, you know, just immersing yourself in, you know, the farm for half hour or two hours if, you know, you're really taking a slow walk. So what are you and Dan growing on Restoration Farm? So primarily vegetables. We're from 30 to 50 different types and hundreds of varieties. So that's what we tell people they sign up for when they join the CSA. But we also have a pick-your-own-berry component, culinary herbs, some medicinal herbs, flowers, and I guess a few perennials. We have an asparagus patch. We have also, in the past year, allowed one of our up-and-coming farmers, this young guy, Peter, we've basically given him a quarter acre to play with, throw his own collection of what we call oddball items. So these tend to be things that Dan and I 
would not grow because they're not necessarily profitable or productive, but they're fun. And I guess, you know, how when you go to a grocery store, they have those lost leaders, like things that the store doesn't make money on, but bring people in the door. That tends to be a lot of what Peter grows with his oddball items. So as an example, he'll do familiar ones would be corn, watermelons, but then odd items too, like rat tail radish and Malabar spinach and all sorts of crazy winter squash. That is great. And just a wide variety of vegetables for people. How many CSA members do you have for your farm? So we ask for about 120 shares a week. However, most people opt to come every other week. So in terms of how many families or households are actually connected to our farm, it's more like 250. Wow. It's a lot of people too. That is Yeah, that's a lot of people in your community that you're feeding. And for those people, what have been some of their reactions and what is their reason for choosing a CSA model to get their veggies versus going to the grocery store? It really does run the gamut. I mean, when we, when Dan and I started Station Farm and our first season with the CSA was 2008, I would say that, you know, the people who joined and and stuck with us were the ones who just believed in the mission more so than needing top quality vegetables because our vegetables, I don't think they were top quality in the beginning. I mean, they were fresh for sure, but they weren't, they didn't, they were not at their full potential. So the people who kept with us from the beginning were the ones who really believed in supporting local agriculture, local farmers, preserving open space. I would say over the years, as we've gotten better and the quality of it has improved, we still have those people who believe in supporting local farms. We also have people who just recognize, hey, the quality of what I get here is better than what I'm likely to get at the store. And then there's people who just come to hang out, you know, that they'll spend, you know, five bucks at the farm stand and hang out for three hours because they just think it's a fun place to be. Isn't that great, though, for people to choose to come to your farm as a way to escape and kind of relax and get out of their norm, let's say their office jobs in the summer. They get to come to your space and hang out, which I think is kind of a great full circle for you. Yeah. And that would not be possible. I mean, I kind of laugh because the name of your podcast is The Rural Woman. I'm definitely not a rural woman. I am very much a suburban woman running a suburban farm. But that's the benefit to farming in suburbia. There's there's no lack of people. And most of the time, if you're trying to find something to do, you have to, you have to pay money. You know, if you want to go to a museum, a park, and this or that, you know, there's very few places where you can go where it's available. And when people come to our farm, they, they may not buy anything. We, we prefer that they do. But if they want to come with the whole family and let kids ride bikes in the driveway out front, you know, that, that's just part of the allure of the place. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think... I like I know the name says the rural woman podcast. I came from an urban background. I didn't grow up this way. I was not born a farmer. So I just think that the more that folks can bring kind of that rural oasis of growing food to urban areas, I think the better off we'll be. Because even like we said, if they are not buying anything from your farm, they're seeing that, you know, they're able to grow food in your climate in kind of an urban setting. So they might be going home and starting a head of lettuce on their windowsill or their front porch or whatever it is. But I just think growing food is really neat. And I just love 
I'm like the biggest fan of suburban farms, of, <laughs> sorry, of urban farms and having them in a place where people can see where their food is coming from, I never think is a bad idea. So you offer so many things on your farm to involve community. Can you share with us more about that and how you are bringing your community to your farm? I would say that our approach to community like so much has evolved over the years. When we first started out, we were very much modeling ourselves on the Poughkeepsie Farm Project because that's what we knew. But I should interject that I got pregnant pretty early into starting the farm and that kind of, I wouldn't say threw a wrench into things, but it definitely put some serious breaks on how quickly we could evolve. My daughter was born in 2009 when the farm is only two years old. And then my son was born in 2011. So we, we had barely launched the farm when suddenly we were in the thick of, you know, raising babies. But in a way, that kind of jump-started a different aspect of community and that a lot of volunteers really kind of rose to the occasion of helping, you know, like helping the farm along through those tough years when Dan was in the fields with volunteers. I was home doing the greenhouse, the office, and tending to babies. So, so we had a strong volunteer component in those very early years. And then once my son was a toddler, at that point, I was ready to kind of come back into the farm more. And one of my biggest changes was recognizing that if this farm is really going to meet its full potential, we need to face about hiring staff and having systems enacted that change, which, you know, there were certain volunteers who kind of felt disappointed, like, you know, the, the spirit had changed because now I'm coming in with standards and, you know, rules and this and that. Um, however, most people understood that, you know, if, if this is a real business, then they're going to have to, you know, run it like a real business. But we found ways to continue to include community along the way. So I had mentioned that we have all these bikes out front. The bike, it, it, they're like mushrooms. They breed. We, our first bike came onto the farm because my daughter needed a bike to ride, and suddenly people started donating bikes. So when you come to the farm on any, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday in the summer, there could be a biker gang of, you know, 10 or 20 kids running around out front in front of our farm stand building while the parents are shopping inside. Like, you won't see that at Stop and Shop, you know, or any supermarket. But that's just the sort of, like, impromptu community that we recognize, like, this is no extra skin off our back to just let kids ride bikes, but it really enhances the place. Additionally, you know, I mentioned we planted berries and other pick-your-own-items as being, you know, part of the, the grand plan. But along the way, other, you know, opportunities have revealed themselves. One example is letting our CSA members do some serious gleaning at the end of the year, or rather at the end of like a crop season. So let's say it's the end of June, we're done with spinach harvest. I'll email all the members and I'll say, all right, folks, head out to the spinach. Here's where it is on the map. Fill your bags and preserve it for the winter. You wouldn't get that opportunity if you were not already invested in the community. But once you invest in us, we try to make sure, you, you know, it's a it's a two-way street of, um, you know, feedback. Yeah. And like I said, like, what a cool opportunity for people who, you know, may not have the area or the skills or whatever it is to grow their own food and to be able to come out and see what you guys are doing and give them the opportunity to get their hands in the soil 
for them to have an abundance of food throughout the winter and however they choose to preserve their spinach or if they just gobble it up and (laughs) keep it all for themselves because there's nothing better than fresh spinach. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, coming back to the idea that in suburbia, there's not many free places where people can convene, you know, like we, we went through a phase where people were telling us you should do kids camps and you should do programming and you should do all these things that really, if, if they're going to be worth your time, you have to invest a lot of time. And we didn't have extra time to run all these extra programming because we were just so busy farming. But we also recognized, you know, a farm is an amazing place full of like discovery if you just choose to put yourself out there. So our attitude at this point is like, just give people as many, you know, tiny little reasons to come to the farm and then they'll be amazed at the unexpected discoveries and experiences they have while they're here, you know? So, okay. You may not think that spinach is worth a walk, but you know, on your way after the spinach, you might meet a neighbor that you never, you know, knew had, you know, the farm in common. And now you guys have struck a conversation and now you're friends. Like those things have happened. People who are live on the same street that never talk to each other meet at the farm and then suddenly become friends. That is so great. And you know, in, the last two plus years now to be able to go somewhere and see people and do it in an outdoor safe area and just to have that community around you and to know that you're adding to this. I I hope that you and Dan kind of reflect on that every once in a while to see all of the cool things that you guys are doing for your community. Yeah, we, we definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> You can help support the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Woman podcast on Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a membership-based platform that helps fund and support creators like me to create and produce content like this that you all love. New to the Rural Woman podcast Patreon is ad-free listening and patron-only bonus content and exclusive episodes. Learn more and join the patron gang today at patreon.com slash the world woman podcast. So you had mentioned previously that you had basically won the bid that you submitted to the county to even create this farm why did they want an organic farm in this? This is kind of something that I don't think I've ever heard of this, of to have it kind of in a public space like this. What was the idea from the county to have an organic farm in this space? Oh, gosh, I, I wish I knew the exact answer to that. Only the county officials from that time could tell you. But I will say that it, I guess there were two things saying at the same time. One was that in the mid-2000s, Nassau County had approved through a vote a bunch of, I guess, environmental conservation bonds because open space in Nassau County was almost entirely gone. So Nassau residents wanted to preserve what spaces remain, so they approved all this um, tax money to buy up what was left. And I guess as there was like a little bit of money left over that had to be, you know, used within the verbiage of the bond 
And that money was not enough to buy up any remaining space because it was all, you know, gone. But there was money to put up a building on one of the existing county properties. And the idea for the building was that, well, maybe this building could house a farmer or, you know, farm equipment. And then someone could farm on one of the county parks so that, you know, this building still qualifies within the terms of the Bond Act. But if, you know, the farm falls by the side, at least the county still gets the building out of the deal. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And it's just so interesting because, you know, when we think about, you know, the expansions of cities and towns and people wanting to keep these open spaces, like what a great idea to keep this space, but make it a farm instead. So it's actually producing food to feed the community, but it's still preserved in a way and you know, still beautiful to look at versus putting up however many houses there instead or building jungle gyms or parks or anything like that. Have something there that the community can be involved in and also produce the food for the community. I would add to that that additionally in the time that we were bidding on the site, which was 2007, there was a countywide initiative called Healthy Nassau to just promote healthier lifestyles. So one of the um, arms of the campaign was to reduce smoking, and we were the other, that Nassau County is going to have its first ever organic farm. That year, that time, 2007, was a good, exciting time to be in, you know, the world of, you know, up-and-coming organic farms because everyone wanted them. There just weren't many out there yet. So I give Nassau County a lot of credit for having, you know, be willing to, you know, try something new. I will say I I never got the sense that anyone really expected us to succeed, you know, but it it was minimal risk to the county. Like, what did they have to lose? The field that they, to us, um, were just being mowed by county employees and barely mowed. Most of them were just covered in a five-foot-high mugwort. So it, it wasn't really like they were taking a huge risk in inviting us in. So, you know, it was certainly worth giving a shot. Yeah. I'm curious, from when you started back in 2007 and the area that you farmed in and the soil quality then versus now, take us through that journey and what that was like for you guys. It's really fascinating. So I I should speak a little bit to the park where we're located. The name of the park is the Old Bethpageville Restoration, and it includes 209 acres, much of it wooded, the park itself was launched in 1970 as an attempt to kind of preserve some of Nassau County's historical and agrarian past because at that time, you know, post-war development was just rampant and historical buildings were being demolished, farms were disappearing. So the county at that point was hoping to, you know, preserve what it could. So it set its sights on this park where we're located right now and the idea was that they were going to restore or or transport and restore old historical buildings from around Long Island. So the old Bethpage Village Restoration has almost two dozen historical buildings from the 18th and the 19th centuries. And the whole concept is that it's an outdoor living history museum. So when people come to the park, they pay admission to enter through, you know, the visitor center. And then when they walk through the grounds, they see all these old buildings that are supposed to recreate Civil War era Long Island. So there's two general stores, a tavern, a schoolhouse, a church, a hat smith, uh, I'm sorry, a hat maker's shop, all these old great buildings. The fields that we rent from the county, they're at the southern end park. They were never farmed commercially and they, they were never subjected to development. They're, it's pretty much like land. 
So in that sense, you know, kind of crazy that we managed to find this, like, you know, piece of pristine soil in Nassau County when, you know, you just go out the front gate and it's an industrial road with, you know, huge trucks rumbling down. So the soil was great from the get-go. It's heavy for Long Island soil. It, it was a challenge for us to work with because a while we were more accustomed to sandy soils. But as far as, you know, fertility and quality, it's great. That is a really big bonus. <laughs> And you definitely lucked out with that, especially when it comes to farming it organically. Can you talk about the different practices that you use to grow your vegetables organically? So I should clarify, I guess when we first launched the farm, we were certified organic because in trying to attract members for our up-and-coming CSA program, we felt like, all right, we are going to need that organic certification to get people to trust us. So for the first forget how many years it was, four or five years we were certified. But then it did get to a point where we recognized, you know, people know us. We're still a relatively small farm. We're always at pickup. Any questions that our customers might have, they can ask to us directly. So I believe in 2012, we dropped the organic certification. Didn't mean we dropped any of the practices. We just didn't want to have to do the extra paperwork. So even though we're not certified organic, our practices, you know, for the most part are organic. In recent years, our biggest you know, focuses are just reducing our tillage as much as possible. We reduce our tillage. I'm a big advocate of cover cropping. I view it like painting. And additionally, we also bring in a lot of organic matter from around Long Island for fertility, mulch, other benefits as well. You are speaking to a certified organic grain farmer, so we know all about the uh, paperwork that goes along with (laughs) being certified organic. So... You know, it's really interesting. I'm a, I'm a type A organized person. I, I keep really meticulous records that serve me. So elements of the organic certification process were no problem, like your seed orders, your, your planting schedules, that was fine. It was the harvest records that were killing me because there was no benefit for me to keep track. And when I would ask her, I like, why do I need to keep track? Like, well, if there's an E. coli outbreak, you need to know what field it came from. I'm like, I'll know. I only farm on two acres. But if you need me to document every time I harvest a head of lettuce, you know, it's like, I'm just not going to do that. So that was where I realized, you know, I I couldn't, I think maybe I had one season where I was doing like all the harvest records, like in December, just to submit the paperwork and realize this isn't really what they had in mind. So I guess the time has come for us part ways. Right. Well, and obviously by then you have developed your customer base and they knew the practices that you were doing. So I I completely understand for small scale farmers, the amount of paperwork that goes into it, even the same amount of paperwork that goes into it when you're doing a larger scale on thousands of acres, like it is a lot of extra labor to do. And for anybody who ever wonders why it costs more money in a store for organic, (laughs) this could potentially be why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I always say to our customers, you know, if you cannot have the opportunity to go straight to the farmer and ask your questions of them, you know, that that's where the organic label is really important. And I hope its integrity is protected because I see a real value for it. But if you are lucky enough to be able to, you know, go to the farm, talk to the farmer, walk the fields, then you really don't need the label. Yeah, absolutely. So what is next for Restoration Farm? What are you hopeful for for the future? Oh, gosh. 
That's a great question because I've really been thinking and talking and writing about it a lot. So I would say the first decade was just getting the farm up and going, getting it on strong footing in terms of like just straight up vegetable production. I think the next decade is figuring out how to keep it going forever. And when I say forever, I mean most immediately after Dan and I retire, but then forever, forever. Because, you know, our location on a public park where we don't even have a lease, all we have is like a use and occupancy permit, you know, that that means that the farm is not mine to pass on. So I really think that we, in order to protect it going into the future, we need to really cultivate a pipeline of people who will take on all the different roles that are essential to keeping this farm running. Because it's not just growing vegetables. It's, you know, all the office work. There's a ton of that. There's the bookkeeping. There's the accounting. There's also just the communication with our CSA members and our customers. There's newsletter writing. There's thinking about how to keep, you know, that community spirit alive. It's a very multifaceted operation and, you know, it needs more than one or two people to run it. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on now, like figuring out how can we spread, you know, the burden and the joy of running this place with a bigger network of people so that when Dan and I retire, we'll be fully confident that the farm will continue. Yeah, absolutely. And such good things to be thinking about now versus when you have to retire or God forbid you're forced to retire having these plans and thoughts in place now to get the ball rolling on succession is so important. And I think that's for any farm operation, whether you are small scale or you got big beans in the business. It's uh, always always good to think about the next generation. And sometimes it can be really daunting and scary to think, oh gosh, who's going to take on all of this mess? Or who's going to take on all of these responsibilities? Like you said, the joys of farming, but also the burdens of it as well. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, the pandemic was really, it was a huge transitional moment for us because, you know, if, when we first launched the farm in 2007, it was a great time to, to, to start a farm. You know, we, we were able to sell these shares, no problem. But the middle 2010s were really hard because that's when Amazon and Whole Foods and Misfits markets and all these, you know, home delivery services really were kind of taking a chunk out of our, like, market share, if you will. It, it was getting really hard and nerve-wracking um, trying to sell CSA shares. When the pandemic happened and the world shut down, suddenly interest in the farm skyrocketed. And for the first time in years, I, you know, I sold out months ahead of our first harvest and didn't have to worry about the market. And I recognize that, well, I've been given this golden opportunity to kind of think ahead. Don't, don't waste it. You know, start, start thinking about what you need to do while you kind of have this captive audience of customers who are really happy to buy what you have to sell. And also of, people who want to work here. I mean, when I keep hearing about the great resignation, I've got people emailing me out of the blue wanting to work at my farm, which is great. I mean, I think it's the idea that people want to do meaningful work. I don't know how long this great moment is going to last. So I'm trying to make as much hay as I can now while the sun's shining. Absolutely. Yeah. It's It's been a really interesting few years. And for me, I came into farming through marriage back in 2016, 2017. And the amount of people that I have seen and their interest in 
becoming farmers or coming into farming and their new and different ideas of what it can look like. I think it's really interesting. And I I myself am excited to be in this industry and see where it goes over the next 20, 30 years and hope that the momentum keeps going, like you said, and, you know, people really want to do that meaningful work and be outside and have all of the good things and also realize all of the bad things that can and the not so fun things that uh, come with farming. But learning new ways of doing things and bringing new people and new ideas, I don't think is ever really a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you, Caroline, is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Oh, um, <laughs> it's such a great question and hard to like, answer in a, a sentence or two. I mean, there, there's no end to the creative outlets that the farm provides. Like, no matter what my interests may be, I'll find a way to express it through the farm. It's never boring. It might be tedious at times. It's never, ever boring. No a reason to get up in the morning and to head to the farm with excitement. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love what you said about there's no end to the creative possibilities. And I think people sometimes don't really view it that way. And I think it's a beautiful way to view it, that it is a creative possibility of what you can do and what you can bring to the farm and what you can bring to your community. And you have obviously done such a fabulous job of incorporating your community with your farm. And I I am just so pleased to have had this conversation with you today. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was, it, was, it was fun talking about it. I do love the farm and talking about farming with other farmers and people who are interested in farming. For sure. For the listeners who would like to connect with you online after the show, where can they find you? So the best spot is our website, which is simply restorationfarm.com. From there, you can email, um, you can find our Facebook and Instagram accounts, and I do a monthly newsletter. So yeah, there's lots of ways to check us out. And I will link that in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Thank you again so much for sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story.
Did you know that you can get this same great episode of the Rural Woman podcast ad-free? I get it. Listening to ads during a podcast isn't always my favorite either, but in order to keep the lights and coffee pot on here at the Rural Woman Podcast Studios, they are necessary. I am so grateful to each and every one of my sponsors, but if you yourself would like to skip the ads while supporting the show, consider joining me over on Patreon. Patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast get ad-free episodes starting at Tier 5 on their podcast player of choice each week, plus some other great benefits. Find out more by heading to the link in today's show notes to learn how you can become a patron through Patreon.